is the North Carolina Food and Beverage Podcast. And now, it's Max Trujillo and Matthew Weiss. All right, we are back. We have a uh, freelance writer, Eric Innsberg, here in studio. We just had our uh, conversation with Eric about his backstory, his origin story, uh, before he became a superhero in the uh, the writing culture and the writing world out here. But uh, but now we're taking a little uh, turn to talk about things that are happening in this uh, in this food culture. I will say very. Um, uh, controversially, and I wanted to ask you this question, I know it's kind of over the top and it's so sensational, but I was saying to my wife recently, I'm like, man, if I was still writing for Raleigh Magazine, I would have had to have written an article that said, is the city of Raleigh the worst food town in America? And I I know it's hyperbolic to say it that way, but my point was just so many places are closing and I know I hate being the guy that comes off with all this negativity right off the off the top but it's like we were riding so high and as Matt and I are analyzing the food and beverage culture of the area of course Raleigh is like our little home base that we're going to notice that more than anything and you see really iconic places close down or truncate their menu or shift their hours to do this and that and then there's just very few places to go and when you're really thinking about it i'm not talking about the periphery i'm not talking about fenton and Cary, which is blowing up and i just opened a place in nightdale which is starting to get activated and all the the northern raleigh areas and durham and all that that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about raleigh so what am i completely off kilter like when I go to other towns, I see how beautiful and booming the food and beverage industry is, and then I come back home and I'm like, "Man, what the hell's going on here? We need some we need some life to be kicked back into the city." Thoughts? Any thoughts here? I think there's plenty of life in Raleigh's food scene, but I'm I also don't know that I'm the best person to ask. I mean, I've lived here for less than two years, so I'm a I'm a transplant. I'm I'm new to this area, and and you have so much. You've seen that arc more than I have. Yeah. Right. But when you go here, like what's inspiring you? What what when you walk out your door to go eat, where like are you excited to go to certain neighborhoods and for what reason? See, I think it's interesting that you said certain neighborhoods because I think that's Raleigh's problem. Uh, I think that we have a in general an urban planning problem in Raleigh where there's downtown and then really like what how many other neighborhoods are there that have a commercial hub mm-hmm. where that restaurants could exist in bars restaurant you know anything in the industry could exist and there could be multiple locations that sort of complement each other I really don't think there are that many. Maybe I just don't know the city well yeah. enough yet. You have North Hills which is thriving. That's yeah. got a lot going on. You have the once once uh, titled Cameron Village, now just The Village. Yeah. But that hasn't really had a lot of activity as of late recently. A lot, if anything, a lot of closures in that spot. I was going to say, if, yeah, Soka just closed, which was my personal favorite place yeah. in that neighborhood. So, You've got Glenwood South, which is more of like a college bar area. But even there, you've got places like uh, Seagrace, which just recently closed. And then... Yeah, but on the good side of that, you also have the Willard uh cocktail bar on top of the AC hotel and you have um the Cortez um yeah and and, and, right, I, and it, I will give a shout out to our 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 buddy over here right on uh, Wilmington Street uh Sonny Gerhardt because he is definitely keeping the the, the torch lit in the, the heart of downtown with St. Rock and that place is 
pretty damn awesome. If mm-hmm. anything, it's better now than it ever has been. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just because Sonny is just like taking that whole thing. He's LeBron Jaming, Jamesing his uh, his place, putting that whole place on his back, and just going nuts with it. So yes, but but it's like Matt and I were just recently in Nashville. And I think he was blown away. It was the first time Matt was in Nashville, and it's like, it's such a big town. But there's so much to do, and there's so many options. And is it because of other industries that are bringing people to, you know, obviously it's a kind of a tourism spot. You've got the crazy music industry there that's then bringing a lot of revenue in. So then that then in turn kind of creates more business as well, such as more bars and restaurants. Uh, you've got sports that's, you know, now doing well. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, are those the things we were in Charlotte recently? And I had to give it to uh, Chef Chris Coleman, who's a friend of ours. There's always been like a sibling rivalry between Charlotte and Raleigh about who's got better food. And I just told him, like, dude, you guys took the ball and ran with it. And you're like 40 yards way down the, 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 the field than from us. Because now, I mean, there's just anything that you want is represented in Charlotte. So, like, I just, I get misty-eyed thinking about what the fuck is going on in this town. We, right. need, we need more to happen here. So, to me, I think it's, it's sort of like who is the scene designed for and who is it built around? And same with the city more at large, right? Like, so, at least, I don't know, I can't speak to your trip to Nashville, but for me, as, like, a tourist showing up, I felt like it was catered to me. That city is a great place to show up uh, whether it's for a, a bachelorette party or, you know, romantic getaway weekend and just roll in there, go to a bunch of bars, have the best time, try some good food and get out. I don't know what the experience is like of being a local there. I assume it's less concentrated well, right yeah. downtown. Well, local sh- or local writer of the area, uh, Mackenzie Lunsford, and she's like, oh, well, we all, we, the locals, live in East Nashville, and that's kind of like the hipster cool spot, the right. the Durham uh, of that area, or like the, the you know... Um, Brooklyn. Br- the Brooklyn, yeah, of Nashville. And, and she's like, actually, when we do see those bachelorette parties come creeping in she's like oh no 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 no! turn around go back to all of the beautiful uh honky tonks that we put on broadway that's where you belong stay there mm-hmm. but i i think there is a lot to, to be done all around nashville outside of there so I, yeah but well so i think it's interesting that you compared it to new york and called durham brooklyn right in that scenario raleigh is manhattan mm-hmm. and uh, it, i lived briefly in new york i've been out of there for a little while but m- my sense is that Raleigh is going through some of the same struggles that Manhattan is with skyrocketing rent and mm-hmm. a, an emptying out of people that used to work in the core of downtown. I, that's got to be influencing the, the foot traffic and ability of restaurants downtown to retain regulars and, and all of that stuff that we, I don't know what the occupancy rate is for, for downtown businesses, but I mean, just walking in here this morning, it felt like sort of a ghost town right totally yeah i mean fayetteville street is just empty but that's i feel like that's the reference and we've talked about this a lot so you know there's the downtown like fayetteville and uh you have where sunny is and you have Bitamanda and brewery bravana kind of back and thriving and then you have that area where a lot of families come from marvel and that that whole square over there more square which has been revitalized but otherwise yeah it kind of feels like a, a, a ghost town and so it's not Raleigh that's the problem because there are great restaurants opening up and happening around Raleigh a lot. Like 
you know, Kevin Ruiz with Bendito and what's going on over, um, obviously at North Hills and all of those surrounding neighborhoods that are still Raleigh, but, but yes, downtown Raleigh is not thriving because of, because of rent problems. Because once we had, uh, obviously the pandemic and lockdown, and then on top of that, we had the riots and it really crushed Raleigh. It really did. And, and if you compare it even to Nashville, like you have those surrounding areas, which are which are doing great stuff and thriving. And you compare it to Charlotte, even in Charlotte, we were there this weekend. It wasn't like we were in uptown, what they call, which is the equivalent of downtown, when we yeah. were hanging out and going to these, you know, we went to Supperland and then we went to dot, dot, yeah. dot. Those were all on the outskirts. That was all south end. We particularly just stuck around there just because it was a one night affair. But, but Noda is thriving and uptown has many restaurants like it's it's thriving there as well so i would just say like that spot in general like you've you've got it a lot and then what ballantyne area that there's things going on over there i mean it's got a lot going on and then even if you do get outside and go up to like davidson or cornelius you've got places out there as well but that would be like the equivalent of raleigh of, of like Cary or something like that right but, but by the same token, I mean, I don't know anybody, I, at least, and correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, maybe you have the, your uh, fingers on the pulse of this, but I don't hear about, like, cool new stuff opening up in Uptown, like, beyond the more kind of catering to touristy spots. Yeah, I don't know. But actually, that was going to be the other point that I had, and this is such a rote and obvious question, but, Eric, since you do cover the kind of food beat, in a sense... What what's new that's opening up that you are excited about? There's a bunch of like things that are maybe hopefully will make me shut my mouth and make <laughs> well, me appreciate what's going on. Maybe not necessarily in Raleigh, but just in general. What's what's new that you're excited about? I mean, Matt, you mentioned Bendito, and that place is incredible. Yeah. Um, it it first of all, it's beautiful mm -hmm. um, inside and out. I, he's Kevin and the and the team there have done a really amazing job setting that up to not feel like you're in a strip mall on the side of a busy street. Which, again, part of what I think right. is Raleigh's problem is like, that doesn't feel like a neighborhood. That doesn't feel like a, a community there. Um, maybe to the people who live in the, that media area, it does. But to me, driving in, I'm, I'm sort of like, feel like I'm nowhere right now. Um, he's done a great job in closing that space, making it feel like, you know, there's nothing else happening in the world outside of you. You can really get like lost in that restaurant. And then the food is amazing. I mean, we must have, that was the first time leaving the house after our daughter was born uh, mm. on our own and, and without her there with us and for our wedding anniversary. And because it was our wedding anniversary and the first time leaving the house, we like ordered as much food as we could eat and then like a couple extra things. <laughs> and everything was fantastic. I mean, that's a really high caliber restaurant. Um, I think what might be happening i could be wrong but i feel like there are few enough commercial spaces plus downtown is experiencing a whole set of challenges of its own that <clears throat> some really incredible restaurants are being pushed more to the periphery mm -hmm. and we may not be noticing them um I also lived in greensboro for 12 years and that's where i started as a food writer so um my perspective on where Raleigh is is probably a little different than yours. I mean, right. Green and see, I'm from LA where it's like, I'm used to big cities and a lot of options and a lot of sub like little neighborhoods and Matt, the same being in New York. It's like, yeah, we're going to go into Soho tonight. Cause that's a whole different feel. Or I'm going to go into Westwood or Culver city or wherever. And that's going to be a whole vibe. That's going to be a whole area. And yeah, we're, we're just like, uh, 
there might be a place where you can get ramen, maybe. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's like that's what I want to see. I want to see more diversity of culture. I want to see um, a lot of inexpensive places on top of chef-driven fancy restaurants. Like, I want to see everything. I want to, I want all of it. So, but to be fair to Raleigh, um, when you talk about those other bigger cities, you mentioned places that are not in LA. And when you go to New York, if you go to Brooklyn to go to a restaurant, you're not thinking like, oh, well, I had to go to Crown Heights, like, New York City's dying. Yeah. You right. Know? That's still New York. <laughs> yeah. And, and so in that sense, like, maybe we need to be thinking of ourselves more, uh, more of this as a region, uh, you know, whether it's to go out to Crafton or go out to Cary or go out to Durham, that's really like all part of the same community, right? You're pulling at least, I don't know how far out you would, you would draw the circle, but to some extent you're pulling from the same labor pool. You're pulling from some of the same diners. So maybe we should give Raleigh a little bit of a break because, because that's, if you, <laughs> if you can say spend a night in Culver City and, and we can't include going out to downtown Durham as part of it, I mean, that, True. that doesn't seem fair, I, but I, I, give, I hear you. I will, I, I will give you this, that downtown Los Angeles was the absolute worst place to go to eat for many, many years. I moved there in 98 and lived there until uh, 2013 and only until maybe 2009, like post economic meltdown um would you actually want to go into downtown los angeles near the staples center and all that it was i mean literally that's the skid row area like tent city and all that like it's a pretty rough area but also just very poor and then you've got like the diamond and garment district and there's all this industry but there was no place to eat now five six seven eight years later it's like oh this place is thriving. It's yeah. huge. So maybe I just need to be patient. Well, and my wife was working in Midtown Manhattan, two blocks from Grand Central Station. There's no good food there. Not really. Like that's not where you go out to eat when you go to New York. There are there are some well, good restaurants in Midtown, but yeah. that's not the destination neighborhood, no. right? And really, what we're talking about is density and population. Even though Daniel Blue did just open an underground sushi bar, right in Grand Central, which sounds pretty freaking awesome Ooh. and grand central i loved grand central oyster bar i'm not yeah, saying there's no good no food no but it's not there, like the yeah there's some neighborhood go. restaurants or whatever but yeah it's not the destination yeah similarly i live in north raleigh and uh sola gonza two roosters are all like right there on oh, top that of that graystone area is kind of one of the best places we're neighbors that i live right over there oh yeah yeah. Hang out. Well, Max, you have to ask yourself the same question then, because you're a big time restaurateur now, opening up multiple locations, and where? And oh, I, I mean, to throw I'm it back in your face. Problem. Yeah. I get it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I know. But uh, all right. Totally so you're the best years. equipped to answer your own question then. Well, yeah, because rent's too high. <laughs> and there you go. There was uh, like rents high. Uh, the parking parking equal. was raised. I was the cynic that, uh, if anyone saw the comment that Raleigh Magazine recently posted. And by the way, I love Raleigh Magazine and Gina and everybody there and the Kraken, uh, whose birthday was yesterday. Yeah, um, uh, Lauren Crockton. Uh, they posted the the rule about how uh, downtown's now lowering the speed limit from thirty five to twenty five. And on the podcast, I'm the one that commented. I said, like, it, it said something like, in an effort to uh, reduce. Um, accidents and all these other things like like in a way to like be safer and yeah. i said no no this is an, an effort to raise uh 
moving violations so that you can ticket more people and all that. I'm like, come on. Like, this is just a way to get more money. And it does feel like a money grab in downtown Raleigh. And so that's just me being a little bit of a cynic. But yeah, I, I would love to have built Crafton at the bottom, like right where the CVS is down here, like right on the corner of Fayetteville and Hargate. Like, what a great idea. And it could be this centrally located place. But there's so many reasons why that wouldn't work for the same reason that a CVS didn't work. Like, how did a CVS not work in the center of town? Like, all we're doing is selling pharmaceutical drugs and toothpaste, and it's con supposedly convenient to get to, and it still didn't drive enough revenue for them to stick around. It's like, um, because there's no, there's no, there's no people walking. There's no one in downtown other than the employees that work in the high rises. And then guess what? They get in their cars and they go to Fenton and North Hills and you know Bendito and everybody like outside of this area. So. Because that's where they live. Right. Right. So it's also a question of like how many people live downtown. And that's why I went to Nightdale. I said, well, people, w let's go where people live. Let's go open a place there. That's why we're going to open in Clayton and we're going to open up in Wake Forest. That's where people live. You know. So yeah. Well, that's that, that's my answer. <laughs> there you go. Well then, fine, Max. Anyways, let's move on. North Carolina is one of only 17 states now where liquor sales are still completely controlled by the government. There are a few bills that are out there to change the control of alcohol in the state. And I ask this to both of you, and to myself, I guess. What are your thoughts on North Carolina becoming an open market state? Liquor. Any thoughts? Eric, I'll let you go first. I, I would like to hear a more compelling argument from the state about why they should retain control. Because I've asked them, and I don't think that I've heard one. Um, there are arguments that it like reduces um, teen drinking and, 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 uh, and similar stats. And I, I, I just, I'm not convinced that that's true. Um, You're saying it that seems essentially convenient. it's mainly for like safety and like for like a... Uh, societal reason social benefit yeah uh, but to me um it's it seems like it's gotten better with s some of the reforms that we've had over the last few years yeah i know several years ago distilleries couldn't even sell a single bottle to you yeah. uh there was one on location but i think before that it was it was zero maybe a zero um yeah. but either way it was zero ridiculous. to one to five over the last five years and now it's essentially unlimited to me, it feels like a, a relic of a more puritanical time yeah, to, to try and have that level of control. Um, and and I, I, I'm open to hearing a compelling argument for keeping it a state-run system, but I haven't heard it. Matt, thoughts? I am all for free enterprise. Um, I think, though, for anybody who's really wanted to read up on this, you have to look at the state of Washington because they were a control state that recently over the last, I think, maybe like six, seven years ago, uh, went to a free enterprise system. And they're happy now, but it took a long time to get there because... Uh, prices actually went up, right? Because the state couldn't figure out, well, now I'm not getting my taxes two ways. I'm only getting my taxes one way with the, you know, on-premise. So how do I, because the way it works now is when you buy liquor at the store, you're paying a tax on it. But if you are buying liquor in a restaurant, the restaurant is paying tax on it. And then you are again paying tax on it when you consume that in a restaurant. A sales so, tax, yeah. yeah, a sales tax. So, so the state's really benefiting from that. So how do they figure out to compensate that? And it's it's going to be a while, or we have to really 
delve into it and do it right. So I'm more for the waiting game and let's really figure this out, how we can roll this out correctly. Because the other thing I'm worried about is when, especially from a selfish point of view, when you bring in free enterprise from spirits, that means uh, Southern Wine and Spirits uh, or Southern Glazers, Southern Glazers as biggest, it's called now, the biggest distributor, distributor in the world of, of alcohol is going to be in North Carolina and going to be very present, mm -hmm. which brings other chain restaurants that are going to be. So what you're talking about, you're going to see PFC, uh, P.F. Chang's. P.F. Chang's, ubiquitous all around, Cheesecake mm -hmm. Factory, all the Darden mm -hmm. restaurants, because Southern Glazers is going to bring them here because they know they're going to sell a shit mm -hmm. ton of alcohol. Plus, RNDC and then even my company, Winebow, will then be selling spirits. So it brings a whole different ballgame. So uh, I'm not so quick to roll it out. Yes, I, of course, would like to see free enterprise for, for liquor, and also we'd have such more options for the end consumer, uh, but we really need to be tactical, strategic, and smart about it. Yeah, I don't know if it will exactly happen, but the way it used to be in Los Angeles and California when I was a liquor rep and a buyer, so I have a little bit of knowledge on both sides, was you had a wholesale price of booze. You had Grey Goose for whatever it might have been at the time. And granted, you know, I was listening to music in 1991, Red Hot Chili Peppers, so my, my numbers are going to be a little off. But, uh, you know, for the sake of argument, let's say uh, Grey Goose was uh, $30 at the liquor store, but we could buy it at the restaurant for like 22 which is what the normal three-party or the three-tiered three system is all about. You buy it at wholesale, you mark it up, and you sell it. And so currently the way it is in a control state uh, – the, the bars and the restaurants that are buying booze are not just buying it at full retail. We're also buying full retail plus the MXB tax price on top of it. So technically you, the listener that doesn't own a restaurant or bar, are buying Tito's for less than I'm buying Tito's at Crafton. I've got to pay a couple more bucks so that I'm allowed to sell you ounces at a time for cocktails that I make. And so what it should do if we go back to a, if we go to a free and open market is Wholesale should actually come back in vogue, and we should be able to buy uh, liquor at wholesale prices. And companies like Southern Glazers or you know Young's Market, RHDC was it? Yeah. RNDC. RNDC would potentially, and I say potentially because they may not do it. It's just the same with gas prices. Once people get used to paying for a certain price, they're like, we don't, we actually don't need to drop our prices. They were going to buy it anyways. But in theory, they they should be able to give us a wholesale price so we could actually make more money, which then is why those Darden companies and those huge companies uh, would come in. They, they do kind of exist in this state, but we're talking about 5% just right there, just not being hit on the bottom line of every restaurant because of the taxes that we pay and the fact that we don't have a wholesale price on liquor. But as soon as that could be eradicated and we could actually see profitability, then all the people that really are funded and know how to make restaurants would just flood the market and change everything. And But maybe to that same point, make Raleigh really dynamic again. Downtown, you've got Restaurant Row all down here because there's going to be money injected in. I mean, that absolutely will be... Yeah. will be the consequence and i don't say that in a negative way it, it, could, it could be a very be a good, good thing, thing. yeah it could, it be could a make thing. a thriving city again i think it will hurt independent small business though. right so yeah you know it, 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 it potentially could you know but but again then uh, as a small guy over here with w like one location i could at least maybe get another five percent to the bottom line if i'm not paying all those in taxes and wholesale or uh, retail prices so maybe i'm going to see a little bit more pull through and if i do a good enough job then maybe uh, this my restaurant can stick around a little bit longer yeah and it's also if the landlords are maybe getting their money from the big uh, corporate restaurants, maybe the independent guy could get a special deal. Yeah. I mean, I think 
what both of you are saying for me underscores that you can't just strike down our existing system without a plan in place. Correct. Oh, no doubt. Because who's going to also run all the liquor stores, right? Right. All these liquor stores right now, somebody did tell me, I didn't realize that some of these liquor stores are not all state owned. They're just state regulated. They're independently owned. And so there are independent people running the ABC stores. I did not know that. Yeah. But, um, but of course, once you then open it up, we're not talking about just restaurants and bars. We're talking about the local liquor store, or dare I say, the local Harris Teeter or Publix that could then, or Costco, like the way it is in California, where you could buy all your booze at those places. And so that's going to open up the distribution of booze to a great number. And then who are those people that are going to be fortunate enough to obtain a retail liquor license? Like, Lord knows I wouldn't mind having one of those. If we were just opening up, yeah, why wouldn't I want to own a, a liquor store and sell liquor down here in the existing CVS, like down downstairs? That'd be a great place to put a liquor store, you know? Heck so, yeah, it would. So that's going to also be crazy, and they're going to have to do something possibly like what Santa Monica did, where they have a finite amount of liquor licenses, and that way there can't be more than, or less than so many sales outlets in the city uh, so that it doesn't become like... Well, at least their words, not become a town like Las Vegas. Yeah. Know? Well, there does bring some seedy elements when you have alcohol. Yeah. Anyway. All right. But before we get out of here, because you brought this book, this little book of Jewish appetizers, um, and I asked you, of course, in celebration of these, uh, whenever this comes out, but right now, as it exists, we are in the high holy day season, which means uh, Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, the day of Jewish atonement, and it's supposed to be very pure, but we eat a lot of stuff. Um, so what's your, what's your go-to uh, Jewish recipe or, or something that brings you nostalgia? So for me, I, I, I'm still eating the meals that my mom and my grandmother cooked. So nice. I, I've not taken over the, the helm of the family of being the one that is preparing the food for the different occasions. So that's so. fine. What are mom and grandma cooking then? Or what are you like, hey, can you make sure for this time yeah. when we come over, you have this? Grandma's brisket okay, and my mom's corn pudding, which I don't know that there's anything Jewish about corn pudding at all, but hey, my, my Jewish grandmother got it from her Jewish mother, so we're going to call it a Jewish rec family recipe. Yeah. Uh, but I brought this book because you were asking about like, you know recipes that i was excited about and though you know those are not necessarily like written down here's the the rules that you follow um, my mom does have a, a sweet potato latke recipe that she found in some magazine once that she clipped out and then like crossed out a bunch of things and wrote in a bunch of so she's that's heavily cool. modified it um, but i grew up eating um there would be like a tr tray where there's like hot regular uh potato latkes and then sweet potato latkes and you have be able to choose both, which mm, I love. It's very North Carolina. I know. That's why, yeah, yeah, very fitting. Yeah, for Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but I brought this book because the author, Leah Koenig, has a whole series of three different, um, you know, it's like the little book of Jewish feasts, little book of Jewish appetizers, and I think the third is desserts. Um, and I... My only contribution to a family meal once was that I, I cooked the borscht crostinis that are on the, the cover here, uh, and they were a hit. But, it, you know, it's a delicate thing. Uh, I don't yeah. know what it's like in your family, but if someone prepares the family meal and you go eat at the holidays for, at their house, you don't really show up and be like, hey, I made something different. No. At least in my family, it's like we have a, there's like a set 
menu <laughs> yeah. is the same every year, pretty much. There's been a little bit more innovation in the last couple of years. You ever heard that years, woman but... that like yelled at her daughter on YouTube about putting like she made the mac and cheese, but she did it. She like decided to put you know vegan this or like a cottage cheese, and the grandmother was like, "You do not mess up the, the mac and cheese on Thanksgiving." She's like, "Well, I hope you're proud of yourself. You're gonna clean all this up." <laughs> like she was so mad at her. But I get that point. You gotta stick to the classics, yeah. right? You gotta do like what everybody's expecting to have. Yeah. But to me, if you you know if you're Jewish and you want to dig a little bit beyond whatever your family makes every you know holiday. Uh, every year or if you are not Jewish and you want to explore Jewish food a little bit I think in general Leah Koenig has written a bunch of great books on Leah Koenig I might be pronouncing it wrong but it's K-O-E-N-I-G is her last name okay Um, Koenig yeah Koenig Koenig that's cool Um, (laughs) sorry Leah yeah Borscht Christini's that's that's pretty different yeah I mean I I think something that's interesting that's happening in Jewish food right now is that people are um, reaching up far beyond the sort of like classic Ashkenazi staples and looking at Jewish food from all over the world or more creative ways to come up with it. So, you know, I'm sure you know, but there's a whole effort, like the gefilteria is trying to reinvigorate gefilte fish. God bless him, I'm still not having any. <laughs> well, it takes you back to when I used to be a waiter at Jerry's Famous Deli. And we would sell that gefilte fish on like a slice of, of Wonder Bread and... Uh, it didn't get ordered very often. Uh, my, my I did sell it to uh, Adam Sandler. Huh? What did yeah. he think? Did he like it? He just went, oh, I have the gefilte fish. And then yeah. I gave it to him, and he just like kind of was back, head, head in into his notes. He was like probably writing Happy Gilmore at the time, but like he didn't <laughs> say anything to me. I feel like if you order gefilte fish, you know what you're getting into. It's a very particular <laughs> acquired taste. And whether it's from the can or whether my mom's making this, I'm sorry, mom, but like I'm not eating it. Yeah, just can't. Hers is way, way, way better than the, that canned gelatin, but um, yeah. I'm not. I'm not doing it. By the way, for people who are wondering, wait, what the heck is gefilte fish? It's typically made with a pike fish, a white fish that's like salted and cured and pickled. I guess and is I, the exact. It, it poached and pickled. I guess is the was classic. Whipped. It was like a. It oh was yeah, like, it was like a mold, right? It was like a, yes. a spread. Yeah. But yeah. then when when you when you put um, the horseradish in it, is that's when it like actually tastes something interesting? Yeah, which to me is still, still not worth <laughs> it. Yeah, uh, it kind of sounds good. I mean, but speaking of Jukro, I mean they you, you have them on the podcast. They do a version of gefilte fish that sort of like plays homage to those flavors. They still have horseradish in it. They use a white fish, um, but they deconstruct it and, and change it enough that I was like, okay. I still wouldn't order this, but if it was like, on the table, I'll, good for I'll you. have some. Good for you. Yeah, they, they talked about it while they were there. We, yeah. yeah, well, we're waiting for them to, to get open here in Raleigh, so. Yeah, any minute now. Well, Eric, thank you so much for sticking around, coming out here, talking with us about the local uh, food trends, the area, and just in general uh, for the two-part series we did today. So I appreciate your, uh, your time being on the show. Eric, great having you in studio, and uh, I look forward to reading more awesome pieces that help me learn more about our culinary world. So once again, go to Eric underscore Ginsburg on Instagram, and you will read about eating and drinking very merrily. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for listening to the NC F&B Podcast. And if you've stuck with us this long, review us on iTunes, and remember, five stars are encouraged. <laughs>